we've been practicing together for a, what feels like quite a while in one sense. It might not seem like that long at all, just a couple of days. And in another way, it may feel like there's been a lot that's taken place, that's moved through our hearts, our minds, our bodies. Certainly plenty and many rich things and important questions have been shared and raised in the in the conversations and the group meetings and the reflections and questions in the hall here over the last two days. And so I'd like to continue to give consideration to what feels like the, the central question that this retreat is somehow woven around. And how we may engage in action to bring about the transformation that we see that is needed in a way in which our hearts stay connected, in which the love that moves us to act is what also expresses itself in the way we act and in what we're connected to in the action. In 2018, not long after I re-engaged what had been in a certain way a, a degree of dormancy in my sense of being an activist and that I hadn't really been out on the streets in the way that one might associate with activism and uh, had taken it much more as an a quieter and more inner-oriented journey of, of transforming hearts and minds with a view to transforming the world thereby. I was part of a group that were seeking to blockade the BBC in Bristol and calling for the BBC to speak about the climate and ecological emergency and to tell the truth there. And uh, there are actions in various parts of the country at this time. But as we were gathering and making plans for how we would uh, occupy the space we wished to blockade and uh, noting that the the police had uh, mounted officers and there were also some rather sort of serious looking security guards who uh, were between us and where we wanted to go. As we contemplated how to do the action, which was uh, somewhat involving a procedure that looked more like a game of rugby than a sort of a peaceful meditative pursuit, one of the, one of the people there he said, hearing what I did, as we were introducing each other, ourselves to each other, he said, you know, I think one of the most important things I could see would be that if all meditators would engage in activism, and if all activists would engage in meditation practice. And there's a way in which the community sometimes look at each other across what feels like a bit of a divide and say, hmm, that's all very nice getting peaceful, but 
Who's that going to help apart from yourself? And the, the sense of, is that somehow selfish to take care of one's own well-being? is raised in that context. And then, of course, sometimes meditators or spiritual practitioners look at what seem to be angry folk making a lot of noise, saying, well, that doesn't look like it's really going to help, is it? You know, don't we want to be coming from something different than anger? And the response will sometimes be, well, if I wasn't angry, I wouldn't do anything, would I? Isn't it the anger that drives the action? And that's understandable because anger does drive a lot of action. It has as its nature a kind of an explosive force and wish to discharge in seeking to change or address something that one is angry about. And yet so often we see that that very anger impacts on the situation in ways that causes harm to those who are impacted and to those in whom it is arising. And a, a question there, how and where does the, the passion for engagement come from if it's not with the fact that I'm angry about the harm that I see being done? And anger is completely, of course, understandable in the situation where we see that harm is being done. Where something we care about is being threatened, is being harmed, whether that be an individual, a community, an ecology, a society. And I don't think I have the answer to this question. But I feel the question very keenly. And I feel the, in a way, the pressure and the sense of the need for action and the need for love to be the basis of that action. And that's what I'm interested in. When the action is not connected with the love, so easily we can find ourselves starting to act in ways that mirror the very things that we wish to address. Where we start to treat an individual or a group is somehow as if they have no value. It's somehow as if it's okay for them to be harmed in the service of what we care about. And sometimes it in fact becomes ourselves when driven by the force of anger that we stop listening to what is okay for ourselves and we may be the one who has not been fully valued when perhaps it would have been wiser to pause. We may be the one who is in fact harmed. This is not some great revelation to anyone who's spent any time involved in activism or reflecting upon it. 
I don't imagine I'm saying something that's particularly news to too many of you. It's one of the, we could say perks, or we could say challenges of the job that involves sitting where I am sitting, which is saying a lot of things that people already know. But in speaking about them, seeking to deepen our understanding of what we know to a certain degree. So if we reflect on the this quality or this that arises in us, what happens for us when that which we care about is in danger? When that which we care about is harmed or threatened or disregarded or devalued? What happens for us? is often our primal evolutionary biological survival mechanisms come into play that say, I need to fight with this. And it activates and generates energy which can be useful, but which tends to also involve a considerable contraction internally and a tightening. And in that tightening, we lose the resonance for ourselves, and in fact, for others. So much that harms our world is done in the name of the belief that it would actually serve. Because the action is coming from an actor or a community of actors who are no longer sensitive to the impact of the action and therefore relating to the concept, the idea, the belief that what I'm doing is for the greater good. Though it may be apparent to another that that is not so. That primal survival mechanism of which anger is one expression has a place But it also has a profound limitation because it has the effect of disconnecting us. When we contract, when we tighten, and that's what anger does. I don't know if you've noticed what it's like, but it, it kind of, it's like we become hard. And we also start to feel kind of large. And our mind tends to be very sure that we're right. Have you ever noticed someone who's angry but uncertain about whether they were right? I've never encountered it in myself. And yet there's often a lot more ambiguity in situations than we acknowledge. And that's part of a way in which we psychically and energetically puff up. It's a little bit like what the, uh, you know, the, 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 the popular culture image of the Incredible Hulk. You wouldn't like me if I get angry. That whole, when we get angry, we're big and we're powerful. But we're also not very smart because the wisdom that comes from our sensitive resonant capacity is lost in that angry place and this is not to judge the place of anger but just to reflect on what happens in that place 
In the Buddha's teachings, there's an understanding that the qualities of the place from which we act profoundly influence the outcome of the action. And that if we act from a place that's contracted or disconnected, even though it may seem to be arising in the service of what we care about, if we're coming from a place where we're contracted or disconnected, there's a considerable risk that the result of the action will lead to more disconnection and to more contraction. So one of the things we learn in meditation practice is to meet those reactive patterns, to begin to soften, to not judge them, to not reject them, to not regard them in any way as wrong because they have, in certain contexts, an appropriate protective function. But also to discern within them what is the true and connected expression of this that's trying to take place. And so far as anger makes us kind of feel like we're really big and sort of puff up a little bit. Have you ever seen a, a cat that's just been sort of threatened and its tail puffs up and its head, it looks twice the size, a lot larger than it normally would? It's to try and scare the other whatever animal probably by looking bigger. And that's what anger does. It puffs us up. But that process of, of getting larger is a facsimile for something. It's, a, it's a, an attempt to replicate something about what happens when we know that we are connected to something larger. And consequently, our system doesn't need to respond in the same way as if it's threatened but actually can come from understanding that in that larger connection, in that larger resonance, and this is the quality of the, in a way, the organism that we have, that we are, that is touched by and touches life moment by moment. And in that touching and being touched by life is actually showing and revealing our connection, our non-separateness from all that we are around and that is around us. That we are constantly touched by and touching, affecting and affected. And understanding that not just as a vulnerability, which we could understand it as, that we are subject to being impacted, but equally as a marker, as a reference for the, for the way in which life is in its deepest essence something inseparable from its different aspects, from the different expressions that come. That in the experience of feeling something we care about under threat, what can arise is the quality of protection that cares for all the actors in the scenario that understands that it's for the protection of the person 
who might seek to cause harm, whether intentionally or otherwise, to prevent them from doing so. Not just for the protection of the person or the, or the being or the expression of life that may be harmed. There's a incredibly, I find incredibly touching story of a of a much-loved teacher and Buddhist master in China, from China, who lived in the um, the late nineteenth century, and he was a an activist. He was agitating for for freedoms for his community in many ways and he was regarded as a real thorn in the side by the government authorities of the time in that land and on one occasion when he was aged over a hundred some thugs were sent by the government to beat him up and they beat him to the point where he almost died and his followers found him and he was in a very woeful state in a lot of pain body really not well and they said to him master master we see how deeply damaged your body is and we know that with your great practice you could stay alive to continue to serve us as your as our teacher but we give you permission to go you don't need to stay here for us we wish you well and we love you but We release you from any obligation. And the Master's response recorded just very quietly. He said, No. Thank you. I'm staying. Thank you for releasing me, but I'm staying because I do not wish those people who beat me to have my death on their conscience. And I remember hearing that story and thinking, how amazing, what it must be, what understanding must there be there to be so deeply concerned for those that have harmed one so profoundly. That one would wish to protect them from further harm by continuing to endure the pain of a broken body. I'm not suggesting by telling that story that one should simply allow oneself to be hurt or harmed. But the the understanding, and I'm sure that He did his best to protect himself. Empty Cloud was his name. He did his best but was unable to in the face of, as an elderly man, in the face of a number of hired thugs. But that quality of heart shining through speaks to me.
And the story is told of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who, when he would travel to Dharamsala in the north of India, he would go to meet the, the monks and the nuns of his Tibetan community who sometimes escaped through the mountains from China where they're subject to a high degree of control and oppression. And this elderly monk he, he, he met and he, he knew he just came come through the mountains and the high mountains and it's cold and there are armed guards who would shoot if he was seen. And, and he said to the, to the, old, the old man, my dear friend, in your journey, were you ever in danger? And the old man, he said, I was only in danger when in my heart I started to hate the Chinese government. And again, a, a remarkable statement from someone who'd just been through an incredibly difficult journey at risk of starvation, dying of exposure, hypothermia in the mountains, or being shot by the sentries at the border who would try and prevent anyone passing through. And yet to understand that the real danger would be where one's heart closes. When our heart closes, we cut ourselves off from the vitality, from the life, from the connection that in the depth of it is what actually means that we care at all. And so in our awareness of what is deeply distressing in the world, of what has been done, what is being done, and what may or will be done that harms who and what we care for and care about. It's not easy to feel the sorrow, the grief, and, of course, the anger, the rage that may arise. But to understand all of this as to be felt as a way of coming back in to connection. Coming back in to the vitality of our life. Love is the quality that sees whatever it sees as not other than itself. As not separate from or of different value than itself. And when we lose that quality, that perception, what is left is something that can act in ways that disregard the harm that is caused. 
And we see this in the world. So much harm that is disregarded because the heart has closed. If we wish to transform this world, it seems to me we need to undertake that work equally with our own inner commitment to transforming our hearts, to learning what it means and what allows the heart to open again and again, not imagining it won't close or tighten or shut down at times when faced with the immensity and the intensity of of suffering, of injustice, of harm and destruction that we may see. To be able to grieve our sorrows as human beings. And ask ourselves, can the love find its way here? The image of the Buddha that I placed on this small table, we could call it an altar if we wished, speaks in this territory in a way that I think is important here. It's not such a common image. I don't know if anyone really paid any attention to it because it's not particularly big. But as well as the Buddha seen sitting as in the, the larger images up here, of uh, images of the Buddha or awakened beings meditating, beings of both masculine and feminine genders in meditation, and we have this sort of, ah yes, that's the image that they sell for the Buddha, inner peace, we remember that one down at the uh, hardware store. I'd like one of those in my garden. Yes, thank you. But they don't sell this one at B&Q. I spent a long time looking through the uh, crafts stores in Budgaya, India, the last time I was there, for an image of the Buddha in this particular way that the Buddha stands. I was in, I was in India. I guess a lot of you haven't even seen what it, I'll just uh, I was in India five years ago because my grandmother was turning a hundred she's Bengali and at that time was living in Sweden but had gone back to India for her hundredth birthday to be with her family and friends there and I wanted to join her. She was someone I didn't meet until I was in my early 20s. And she's still alive, age 105 now. Ra remarkable woman, looks about 73. And when I met her, I'd just done my first meditation course and that was by accident. I went to India to meet my grandmother. I wanted to meet my grandmother. But along the way I happened upon a meditation course and when I got to her, it's like there was this whole new thing 
for my world meditation. And I said, I just did a meditation course. And she said, oh, yes, I meditate. My guru, he placed his hand upon my forehead and we go places. <laughs> and I thought, that sounds a little different than what I did. <laughs> my teacher tells me to sit on a cushion and it hurts. And it takes a long time for anything to happen. I didn't say that in response. That was the first thing she, just about the first thing she said to me. But the other thing that I found out was that she was engaged in activism in her local community, the Savadaya movement, seeking to bring the poor village people into a state of greater health and well-being. And that she had been part of the Indian independence movement under Gandhi, the group and the, the, the Indian people who sat in front of the British army and said, we will not move, even if you shoot. And they did initially shoot. But very quickly, the army couldn't keep shooting because the people just sat there with their hearts open. And my grandmother actually met my grandfather because he was, he was Swedish and in India and also joined the Indian independence movement and that's how they came together. So I kind of feel the sense of a lineage to the non-violent civil disobedience movement. Um, and equally, my grandmother's involvement in spiritual practice was something that for me validated what I was just wondering about and hadn't yet really immersed myself in. But she was this very sweet little old lady even when I first met her in her 70s. And she still seems kind of much the same. But there's something about her that is fierce and powerful and beautiful in that, but so soft. And so... I'd been wanting to find an image of the Buddha in this posture. And I, in the end, brought this one home, even though it's not finished. The back of the image, if you've ever seen a carved Buddha image, is generally quite developed on this side as well. But this one, the Buddha emerges out of a flat black, sorry, a, f a flat block of wood because it was still in the workshop, but it was the one that I was looking for. I'd like to invite you, if you will, just to, to try something. With whichever hand you might do this. I'm left-handed, so I'm going to use my left, but see which hand wants to do it. Just do this. Bring your fingers together. Bring your thumb close. I feel it a bit like a hand that might, if it knew how to do that, do karate. And just take a moment to notice what it's like to be sitting upright as you do this. And then just see where does the hand want to be in front of you. And then notice what does it feel like to have this here. What do you sense in the shape of your body and the feeling of the palm or the arm or the shoulder or the whole sense of you sitting upright. Does anyone have a word that comes to them or a phrase? What do you notice in just doing this?
you could call out. Strong. Control. Soft. Stop. Thank you, sorry. Stop. No. Resolute. Resist. Obey. Enough. Just notice what's the effect of having it here. What does it, it, that's some of what absolutely what it says. In fact, in some countries, on the traffic sign, there's a palm print, the stop sign, and it says stop, and there's a palm print, because it's a universal language. If you want something to not keep happening, you do this, you say stop. And here's the Buddha in this image, stop. What's the effect of having it there in front of your body? Again, does anyone notice anything from that? Openness, yeah? Boundary, yeah, absolutely. Courage. Protection. Interesting, yes. All of... Giving, there's something flowing out, yeah. Really interesting. So... And this is called, in the, the language the Buddha's teachings were recorded in the Abhaya Mudra. And it's translated most commonly as the Fearless Mudra. But I think more accurately describes what I would call the Courageous Mudra. Because courage is that quality that doesn't require an absence of fear, but is willing to act in the face of something scary because one wishes to honour what is true or one acts in accordance with what is true even if it's scary to do so. And this is not something threatening or aggressive. It's really interesting how we feel it. I notice if, if you just sort of... S you don't have to keep playing with it. I, I like to, obviously, you can tell. What it's like if you just stretch out the, the inside part of the, um, the palm as you do it, as if the, the rear of the palm was slightly pushing forward into the front of the palm. And it's a bit like the lower back, I notice it, the quality that the spine takes when the body is really upright and the belly is supporting it. And there's this very clear sense of strength or power that many people sense. And equally this quality of boundaring or protection and the message of no or stop or enough. And it expresses the quality of open-hearted resistance to something harmful. Or what we could call fierce compassion that is fiery, but at the same time loving. And the Buddha speaks about this quality when he talks about qualities of the heart and the quality of compassion, which is understood in the tradition to be, in a way, the, the, wing of the, the second wing of the bird. The first is wisdom, the second is compassion. Wisdom, in its deepening, releases our heart from entanglement. Peace and freedom are its fruit. Compassion in its flowering, in its 
in its fruition, engages the heart in response to suffering, in the wish to heal, in the wish to transform, and specifically here, in the wish and the commitment to protect. And the image the Buddha uses for this particular quality of compassion is the image of, and classically it's a mother, but it could be a parent of any gender, standing at the door of a room in which their child is resting. And someone comes towards the room wishing to harm the child. And the response of the parent is, no, there is no way you're coming through that door with the wish to harm my child. No way. But it's clear that this isn't personal. It's not about you, it's about the intention you're bringing here. And that sense of saying no, to say no to what is harmful, without conflating that absolutely with somehow a judgment of the person in that circumstance, who will inevitably be driven by their own pain or confusion or neediness to act in the way that might cause harm. And I say that with absolute confidence through having examined in myself really clearly and carefully and often as a practice what has been going on when I have acted in ways that have caused harm. We've all caused harm through our actions and omissions at times. All of us, for sure. But we can't know what's going on inside someone else. We can know what goes on inside ourselves if we practice and examine. And what I have seen again and again and again is that actually it's some sense of unmet need and desperate wish to get something or some sense of unheld fear of threat and wish to avoid something that I'm finding scary or difficult or painful that has led me or driven me to act in ways that harmed others. And it's always like this. And I am confident from the careful examination of my own experience that I am not so different than anyone else and that the same is true for everyone else whether or not I can see that to be the case. And that what needs to be met and said no to is that place of self-centered needy, self-interested greed or the, other, the disregarding of other that means we might push away or take from another without care for the impact upon them. That comes from a place of deep disconnection. And to say no to this is to protect the other equally as it is to protect oneself and who or what one cares for. And this doesn't look like for many people the sort of the familiar idea of Buddhism about sort of calm, peaceful people sitting around doing nothing. And yet if you go to Asia and maybe also temples in, in, in the West, I, I've not been to so many, but certainly in Asia you will often find around the gates 
or the doorways to the temple. These fierce, these carvings of fierce looking creatures with bulging eyes and long fangs and sharp claws. And you look at them and you think they don't look peaceful and they don't look like they're doing kindness practice right now. They don't look like they're going, may all beings be happy. They look scary. And it's this particular quality of the heart that emerges to protect that which is precious and needs protecting, but that stays open. And this quality that's firm, but it's not aggressive. It's not the come near and I'll thump you. It's boom, stop. And if needed, you know, back off. Not meaning to do that at anyone. This quality comes from the depth of our connection to the wholeness of life. When life is not fragmented in the way our thinking mind tends to do that separates us into us, into me and everything else or to we and they. That breach of the wholeness of life that is reinforced when we enact angry reactive behavior is the fundamental issue of concern. The crises of our world are not just crises of the world. Crises of ecology, of climate, of social justice, of oppression and destruction. They are equally crises of the spirit crises of the human heart that in the movement towards the culture that we've created and the emphasis on the materialistic and the superficial appearance of things does not see the profound connection that exists and we feel that connection in our concern and our care for what is harmed whether ourselves or another, or something we're aware of, or some community we're in touch with, or hear about. Something in us knows that. But we don't always have the resource and the training and the capacity to stay in touch with that when we act. And this is a process of training. It's not something we can just do by saying, oh, yes, I know we're all connected. And those bastards, they should be disconnected right now. Let's turn them off. I don't usually swear when I'm giving the talk in the evening here. That may be the first time I've used that word. At least I haven't said fuck. But um, in the activist world, one might use that language because one needs something to give it a bit stronger to express what that is for us that comes through with strength and power. But to see, can I 
in allowing, in enabling <coughs> that power to come through, can I stay soft and open? Can I allow this vehicle to be a conduit for the force of life that wishes to stand up for itself? That doesn't leave anything or anyone behind. And in a certain way we can understand the practice that's been offered and we've been exploring here is a process of allowing ourselves to become more open and ultimately more transparent to life. And it's a two-way process in which we actually start to feel and know the visceral depth of our connection. Not just as a nice idea or a feeling, but as a felt, lived, breathed, moment-to-moment -moment experience. And in that connection, we become a conduit for the profound love that life has for itself. To express itself in the service of its deepest well-being. And so it's about trusting that there is something greater we could say than just this one who's called to respond. Although, of course, we can say, yes, it's just this one. But why are we called to respond? What is it that means we care so much? Is it not that that's speaking to us? of the depth of our connection. And if it's speaking to us of that, can we leave anything out? And honour the truth of what is spoken to us in that place? Can we leave anything out? I don't think so. Not ourselves. We can't sacrifice ourselves for others. Of course, we might sometimes prioritize the well-being of others and take on things that involve a cost for ourselves. Absolutely. Sometimes we might offer even up our life. And people have. And the community of Thich Nhat Hanh, who I mentioned, the great master who, and beloved teacher and amazing human being, who passed away yesterday. Some of the, the monks of, and the nuns of that order protested in America against the Vietnam War and the bombing with, with napalm, with fire of the villages of Vietnam by setting themselves on fire to say, this is what you're doing to my people. Is this okay? And clearly not.
And that, of course, may seem to be a sacrifice and not one I'm suggesting is everybody's path. But sacrifice is to make something sacred. And in its sacredness to understand it is connected to everything. And that at times we might go beyond what is sustainable for us. But for most of us, the deeper wisdom and the truth of our love will in fact be to say, I also need to pause and take care of this one. If it's always and only about caring for myself, that's a problem, a really big problem. We see the effect in our world of that problem. And it is tragic and desperate. But if it's only about caring for what we see as other and not for this, that equally becomes ultimately destructive and unsustainable. We have to care for the wholeness, which includes this one and these ones and those ones too. And the caring may, make, may take different expressions. In the recovery community, the phrase is used, tough love. Tough love is like fierce compassion. It's where one says, I will not enable you to continue to do something harmful to yourself. And I will use whatever coercive capacities and force I can bring to bear upon you to prevent you from doing that which harms you and others. But out of love, out of love, not out of judgment. Understanding, if we've looked and seen in ourselves that this is true, that whatever harm is being done is born of unheld suffering and pain. And that we would thereby wish to find ways to heal that too. It is only through this, it seems to me, that that which we wish to bring about by way of transformation can ultimately come. And yet, of course, along the way, we will engage from as yet imperfect positions. There's no way we can wait until we finally sorted all this out. Before we, before we act. But at the same time, to keep looking to see what's possible. Where can I find my way back to the heart? Where can I bring my heart into my action? Because without it, the connection and the love on which all of this turns slowly loses its moisture and its availability. And we need to deeply care for each part as we care for the whole. And again, just honouring Thai, Thich Nhat Hanh, as he was named Thai, which means teacher. 
He was once asked, what is the way to peace? When he was engaged in his activism to bring an end to the Vietnam War. He was asked, what is the way to peace? And very famously, it's often quoted, he said, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. And there is, in a way, or we could say perhaps, there is no way to the transformation we seek that is separate from engaging in the journey with the very qualities that we seek to be the outcome. The means and the end cannot be separated in the human heart. And the culture of our world is nothing more than the collective sum of our human heart cultures. That's what culture is. As we engage in the world, as we engage with our hearts, the transformations that are possible go together. And we cannot engage in one without the other becoming essential if we wish to engage effectively. Or at least that's how it seems to me. So let's just sit quietly together for a moment or two. May our engagements, both inner and outer, our explorations and our responses to what we find, our activism of the heart and in the world, may this be for our own well-being and the welfare of all that lives. May the love that moves in the very depth and core of our being, at the very heart of what it is that we are, may it find, may it find its way into this world more fully, more fiercely, and ever more fruitfully as we travel the journey of life.
So the time is just coming up to 8.30 and we have some time for walking. I'd like to ask the bell, is the bell ringer here? Yeah, thank you. If you could ring the bell at 10 to 9 and we'll have the sitting at 5 to 9 or thereabouts. So just take, just a little later than otherwise advertised. Thank you. And in the walking, you may wish to walk formally, or you may wish to just contemplate the themes of the of the evening or the, the weekend as you as you move or find your way through the the next little time. And then we'll come together at five to nine for the last sitting of the evening. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for your presence and thank you for your care.